Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 97 of the Benzo Free Podcast, episode 97. <laughs> I honestly have no recollection of doing the first 96. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it's been almost three years now and we've been doing this for a while. So how are you doing? You know, my, my hope for you is that today is a good day. Just, you know, sometimes we just want one good day to help us get through the other ones that can eat away at our at our resilience and eat away at our that positive mood we try so hard to maintain but find so difficult to maintain in the midst of benzo withdrawal so my hope for you today is that today is a good day a good day this is part 2 of our two part interview with Dr. Alexis Ritvo If you haven't listened to part one yet, please go back and listen to that first. It'll make a lot more sense, I think, if you listen to part one first and then listen to part two. But you know what? You don't have to. You can listen to them in any order you want to. Or if you just think the content of part two is what you want to hear and not part one, I get it. Listen to part two. That is fine. You can find a link to part two of this interview. I'm sorry. You can find a link to part one of this interview because this is part two. You can find a link to part one of this interview in our show notes. Also, part two is actually the longest part. Part one was shorter, about 30 minutes or so, but part two is about 45 minutes, I think, close to that, um, of the interview. So since this one's longer, our introduction here is going to be much shorter. So I'm not going to talk too much about things here. In fact, I'm going to end it real shortly and just say, I hope you're doing okay. I hope you have that good day. I hope, I just hope this ends soon for you. I hope we all can get past this. I hope we all can find some solutions. I hope we all can stop this from happening to people. And I say I hope, meaning I have that hope. I'm seeing signs of this. I'm seeing some solutions. I'm seeing advocacy. I'm seeing awareness being raised. I'm seeing some changes happening. And it's exciting. And we're starting to make a difference. But for those of you in the middle of withdrawal, where it just keeps going on and on and on, I get it. It's hard to see that hope. It's hard to see that progress. But it's there, trust me. And things are getting better. And we're doing the best we can to try to make sure that that this doesn't keep happening to people over and over again. Our format for today's episode is our introduction, which was brief and you just heard it. (laughs) 
And then our feature is part two of our conversation with Dr. Alexis Ritvo. Before we move on, don't forget, I'd love to hear from you. Please comment on our videos on YouTube or on our podcast posts or via our feedback form on our website at easinganxiety.com feedback. And while you're there, perhaps you might want to subscribe to our mailing list or even donate to support the work we do. Every little bit helps, and those donations really make a big difference for me. And remember, the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only, and it should never be considered medical advice. Our feature today, as I mentioned, is part two of our conversation with Dr. Alexis Ritvo. Even though I read her condensed bio in part one, I, I think I should repeat it here too. It's only going to take me about 30 seconds or 45 seconds. But just in case some of you are only turning into part two or tuning into part two and not into part one, I think it's good for me to repeat this really quickly here. So, Alexis Ritvo, MD, MPH, serves as medical director for the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. And she is also co-chair for the Benzodiazepine Action Workgroup at the Colorado Consortium for, 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 I should be able to say this, I say this word all the time since I work for them, but at the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. But it still trips me up sometimes. She is a board-certified addiction psychiatrist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She has been the program director for the CU Addiction Psychiatry Fellowship since July 2020. Dr. Ritvo has a passion for psychotherapy, teaching, and improving health systems and policies. I'm going to leave it there. There's much more to tell. And if you really want to hear her complete background, please listen to part one. She gives a wonderful introduction and tells some about some things about herself, some very interesting things about her lineage and psychiatry and everything. And I think it's interesting, so please go check that out. But now let's move on to part two of our conversation with Dr. Ritvo. All right, and welcome back to part two of our conversation with Dr. Alexis Ritfo. If you haven't listened to part one, please do so. You can find it on our website at easinganxiety.com. So, Dr. Alexis Ritfo, welcome back. Thank you. Um, in, the, in part one of this uh, conversation, we talked a, a lot about advocacy and a lot about um, organizations and work that's being done to help the patient, to help prescribing, help de-prescribing, peer support and such. I'd like in the second part to move on, since most of our listeners are actual patients, people who have are dealing with long-term complications, um, who are even in the middle of a taper or have completely tapered and still have protracted going on for months or years, um, and, and what they're dealing with. And I think it'd be great to now have a conversation kind of geared towards them about, you know, maybe what, what can we do to help them, or where do they go, or what have we learned about this? So mm-hmm. I think one of the things I'd like to start with, start with, if it's okay with you, is um, the doctor situation. The question that we get most often is, how do I find a doctor? Mm-hmm. Uh, many people are frustrated with their doctors, either psychiatrists, GPs, um, whoever's um, working with them. Um, some can't seem to find somebody who will help them withdraw. Some tell them to stay on the drugs. Um, some won't listen to them, don't feel they're being listened to. Um, I know we've worked through different things about talking about, you know, getting with benzo wise physicians, or even if that's as important as it is just having a, a doctor who will work with you and listen to you. What's your take on this? What advice might you have? And where do you come from on, on this topic? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, while I wish we were already in a world where all um, prescribers that are prescribing benzodiazepines were, were benzo wise, um, that's not yet the case. So, 
I think first and foremost is just finding a doctor that you feel like will listen to you and is willing um, to have acknowledge some what they don't know. So finding a way, uh, having a doctor that, that you can provide some resources to, um, to say, you know, I realize this is not something that um, many prescribers have heard. We know there's at least 10 to 15% of, of patients that really do have this extremely difficult um, time uh, with benzodiazepines, especially coming off them and, and prolonged symptoms and giving them some resources. So I will say the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices has, some, has created some really good tools for talking to your prescriber um, and trying to provide them uh, some education. I think, you know, even going- How do, how do they find those? Is that on their website? Yeah, if they go to the, let me let me look it up and I can tell you. Um, so benzoreform.org is the website URL. And then- Yeah, and then they are called- my my computer's now being a little slow, so give me. That's okay. Too much thinking. Um, so when you go to the top, the the top kind of uh, information bar has um, a one section that's for patients, and under the patient okay. tools, there's a prescriber information pamphlet. There's a pamphlet communication guide and summary, and a prepare to meet, which I think is like preparing to meet with your prescriber. And all those pamphlets are are printable to bring in. Um, the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition also has good resources. Right. Um, and then, you know, there are, as well as um, our consortium, those those guidances. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you maybe want to pick one that you like um, to start with, but I think um, telling your prescriber that, You've, as you've learned more about this and found these reputable resources, um, you think that these might be some of the things that are affecting you and are they, would they be willing to learn more about it and see how they could support you in um, potentially decreasing these medications in a very, you know, in a safe, effective manner, um, evaluating the, the other symptoms that you might be having. Um, from these medications. Oh, that's great. Uh, one, one of the stats that one of the stats um, out there, of course, and it, it varies depending on, on the source, anywhere from like 60 to 90% um, of all benzo prescriptions are provided by a general practice by a GP. And that seems to be as a psychiatrist, that seems to be kind of where a lot of the do you think that's part of the problem? Um, is it just a lack of education since they're not don't have the specialty training that psychiatrists do in some of these drugs? Is that part of the problem? I I don't so one of the one of the talks I've given actually that is posted on the consortium website about um you know lessons we can learn from the opioid epidemic um right I think there's a big parallel to what we saw with opioids so I think um for a long time um you know it's touted that benzodiazepines are fairly safe because they they were safer than the previous generation of medications, yeah, yeah. <laughs> medication. Um, but we, you know, it takes time to to learn what we don't know, and so I think there just hasn't been, you know, so much. Um, how should I say this? So with opioids, you know, we knew there became a big focus on pain, and it's faster to prescribe a medication than to try to find alternative therapies, get people connected with physical therapy mm -hmm. or acupuncture, um, uh, 
you know, other modalities. And so that worked really well. And, you know, it, it took uh, a few years or more for us to realize that there was a fair amount of harm related to these medications. Um, and I think with benzos, I mean, they've been around, you know, been used frequently for longer, but um, I think there was a period of time right. where they became even more common. And a lot of it is also a result of our um, poor mental health system, um, inadequately mm -hmm. funded and adequately staffed um, mental health system, people having trouble accessing therapy and other modalities that we know are helpful for anxiety and distress and trauma. And general practitioners are trying to evaluate and treat, you know, everything that a, a patient presents dealing with. And many patients have heard of these medications, either from friends or family or previously taking them, uh, benzodiazepines, and may ask for them specifically. Um, right. And in a 15-minute follow-up visit, uh, you know, to even try to go through all the potential risks. So I think... I think that's how a lot of this got set up. Um, you know, the psychiatrists do prescribe a fair amount of benzodiazepines. I would say a good portion of them are being continued after they've been started, say, by a, a general practitioner. But overall, over time, there hasn't been a change in the percentage that um, okay. that psychiatry has been prescribing. There's been a big increase in how much primary care has been prescribing. Okay, And I think a lot of that, too, is especially in our country, we have this mentality, you know, of you shouldn't be in pain, you shouldn't be in anxious, you shouldn't be in distress. Right. Um, the, the magic pill, we, we all want the magic pill. Yeah, because other developed countries do not prescribe them at the rates we do. Um, right. And other developed countries like Britain and Australia, which also have very different health systems, but they um, also have much more clear guidance on prescribing these. You know, one, one of the things I hear a lot about is, you know, of course, I deal mostly with people who are in, you know, difficult states and have been harmed and are, you know, many of them have lost jobs, lost relationships, lost so much of their life, who are so focused in the anger and, and, the, and the frustration and are having trouble moving on to the healing. From a psych psychiatric point of view, how, how do you work with somebody that's kind of trapped in that mental state? Yeah, I mean, I think... I guess I would say in some ways it's like a complex grieving process, you know, any sort of okay. trauma we ex it's a trauma of sorts, right? Um, right? Something that negatively impacts us, feel like we lack control um, and have been the victim of something. I think a lot of it, there's acceptance and some of it is allowing yourself to feel a mix of feelings. Mm -hmm. One of the, the terms I often teach patients is the idea of a dialectic. So a dialectic is the idea that you can have two opposing things that coexist, um, right? So okay. you can be pissed off, angry, um, hurt, and you can be hopeful, uh, loving, have things that you're excited about. And those two things can, can coexist. So sometimes if you try too much to ignore what you're feeling that's bad, um, that can kind of you know, pressure, right. pressure cook. Right. Um, so how do you allow yourself those feelings while also allowing and cultivating the feelings that will help you move forward? And these medications, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I've also suppressed a lot of those feelings if we've been taking them long term. And the return of those emotions is one of the things 
I hear so often and I dealt with too. Yeah. So yeah, this idea, I mean, one way I've put it is, so as, as the mother of two young children, toddlers who I'm regularly trying to help deal with their emotions and things that seem very, you know, are very upsetting to them. While sometimes I wish I could just take it away because it would make it feel easier and, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I wouldn't have to kind of stay in the thick of it with them. Ultimately, what I hope for as a parent is that I help them learn that how to handle this distress, help them learn that they can tolerate the distress, help them learn how to identify their emotions and how to regulate them um, and move through them. And I think what happens with benzodiazepines when used chronically is, yeah, you've your body and brain has been used to having this uh, medication on board that has dampened um, yeah. your response to anything that is distressing, but also to potentially having feeling the full range of emotions. So maybe not only negative emotions, but also experiencing you know, right, more right. positive emotions, happiness, excitement, um, because your nervous system has been under this kind of chronic state of sedation. Yeah, even even, even return of libido um, mm -hmm. is often we've noticed too with many people. So it's just that return of joy and sorrow both. Yeah, come back and, and knowing, um, and having the faith that you can handle life's you know yes. distress. And yeah. I will say this is where I think having background in working with individuals in addiction is helpful because that is a big thing that individuals right. also in recovery from addiction struggle with because they have been used to having a using a substance um, that modifies how they think and feel to exist in in daily life um, and deal with um, life's you know events and stressors and to suddenly take away that coping skill even if it has become or is maladaptive or has um, some negative parts, which I think, you know, the long-term use of benzos we know does, um, puts you in yeah. a place where you're really vulnerable because you have to e either learn new coping skills or have to go back and bring out ones that you haven't used in a while. Exactly. Ashton mentioned the learning deficit, which I bring up a lot. Yes. And I know we've talked about before, which it really, you know, that's part of the problem is, you know, we're the, the medication, in my opinion, has helped us, you know, helped us manage our emotions for so long. And now we no longer have that quote unquote benefit. And now we have to learn those skills, those tools, those tools for managing anxiety and stress that we may have let atrophy over time because we didn't, a, a pill was doing it for us. Yeah. Yeah. And realizing um, and having, building that self-confidence again, that you can handle this, you know, right. I will get that makes sense. This, that makes sense. this too shall pass. Like, um, you know, the, because when you haven't, then smaller things, yeah, feel really overwhelming. And like I said, I see this in my my toddlers all the time. Some of the yeah. things that get them really upset because they don't know yet. Like, it's okay. Like, that's out of my control. And while it's upsetting, my, you know, things are going to be okay. I really love the self-confidence piece. I don't really think of it from that standpoint, but I think you have an excellent point of, you know, knowing that you can get through this, knowing that you can handle this, knowing that you can handle these emotions are definitely things I see people struggling with um, when they're coming off of benzos. And I think that's an excellent, an excellent point. Yeah. Um, one of the things on that about mindset too, that I noticed when I was going in, when I, when I found out I was dependent on, on clonazepam after 12 years, I decided to go back to my original doctor who wanted me to stay on it. So I went back to a previous doctor who was still fine with me staying on it, but would work with me. And he was a doctor I trusted. So he was the one I wanted to work with. The first thing he did was say, I want you to wait six months. 
he did not want me to start to taper for six months because, and quote unquote, he said, I don't have the right mindset. Now, of course, I then since then have written about, quote unquote, the mindset in my book, and I've talked about it on the podcast many times, but I think you might understand this and maybe can elaborate on it. I, I wasn't mentally stable at the time I first went to that doctor, and he saw that in me. And I, I think it was one of the smartest things ever done was that mm -hmm. my doctor said, I want you to wait six months before you start the taper. Can you can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, I think we see this in, in psychiatry all the time. Um whether it's someone suffering from depression that's been on antidepressants or mm -hmm. in I deal with this in, in substance use disorder, say an individual that's in recovery from alcohol and has been on a medication for addiction treatment that is helping with cravings and they don't want to be on it long term. Um, in both of those cases, what I'll tell people is, I mean, one, unfortunately, because of the complexities of studying these things, we don't have great research, but what we, you know, we know the, the best thing we can do to improve someone's outcomes is to try to make sure at the time that we start to taper these medications mm -hmm. um, that we do it when the patient's at their most stable and their risk factors for return of symptoms or return in substance use, return to substance use, return of depression is lower and their protective factors are higher. Um, and so I'll talk to patients about that and say, I mean, and usually that you want symptoms to be stable somewhere. Yeah. And that, I mean, again, we don't have great research, but six months to a year, depending on um, what the circumstances are. Um, you know, I tell people we don't want to make these, these start these changes when you're changing jobs, moving, you know, going through a divorce, um, right. uh, have, you know, someone in a family that's ill, like these would all be things that it might be better to keep things where they are. Granted, you know, everyone has different circumstances and different um, desires, but just keeping in mind that those distress, you know, those kind of events um, are mm -hmm. going to make it more challenging because that's when you need a, a reserve of coping right. skills um, and confidence in your ability to get through things. Triggers get escalated so severely at, at that stage. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to, it's nice. I know a lot of people can't always manage that or have that availability to isolate some of the, you know, their stressors in their life, yeah. but it's great to be able to do that at least for a short term while you're so heightened, yeah. at least in my opinion. So that does seem to be a factor that people deal with. Yeah. And I think if, you know, depending on the resources available to someone, their insurance, and of course, I mean, just in our mental health crisis coming in amidst this pandemic, just lack of providers. Um, but, you know, if someone's able to First and foremost, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. So if someone's able to get into right. psychotherapy and have someone that they're meeting with regularly, ideally at least yep. weekly, or at the very least every other week, um, to just have someone outside of their usual circle that they can process what they're experiencing and, and that can help them hold mm -hmm. some of these distressing experiences that they're going through um, is invaluable. So I think if they're able to do that, great. If they also have other, you know, if they have more moderate to severe depression or, or other mental health issues going on, you know, getting an evaluation to determine if other medications could be helpful in addition to mm -hmm. psychotherapy. Um, I, you know, understand that patients are going to be, many patients will be reluctant to add something else when they're trying to get off a medication they see as harmful. But I think finding a provider that you feel like you trust and can have this discussion of the potential risk benefit of each choice. Right. Yeah. In fact, I just had a, um, one of my listeners just, just contacted me saying, 
I think I need some some additional medication. And of course, my first thing to it is, well, you know, I can't advise you on that. Um, and then my second thing is, you know, I, I went through that. I, I had a couple SSRIs I tried out along the process. I don't think they benefited me very much, but for some people they do. And I know mm -hmm. Ashton even talks about that in her manual about this. That's one of the few supplements that can help sometimes antidepressants and stuff like that um, through this process, because it's a very difficult process for some people. Yeah. Um, as we know, not for all people, but for some people, it's very difficult and we might need some help. Mm -hmm. um, how, how about non-medication options? I don't know if you ever get into this or ever have dealt with this with some patients through like benzo withdrawal. Have you heard of that? What's your take on that? I mean, to me, as long as, again, it's all a risk benefit. So most things like, right. I mean, certainly psychotherapy is helpful and, and depending on what someone's dealing with in their life, what, you know, there's different modalities um, with different evidence for different symptoms. But mm -hmm. I certainly think, you know, since a lot of this comes, most people are taking a benzo usually for anxiety and or insomnia. So doing things um, that have good evidence for helping with those. So um, for short term okay. for building some skills, things like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is actually gold standard. It, it, it has better effects than medications for sleep. So seeking out, you know, a group if you can, if not, there's a lot of great online resources for um, what you'll hear is CBTI. So cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, S same cognitive behavioral therapy, especially with um, mindfulness-based relaxation. So mindfulness, I think is yeah, I thought that and counseling for me were were probably two of my keys were mindfulness yeah. and, and it takes practice. Yeah, it does absolutely, and I'm not great at it, but I try to stick with right. it. Right, I mean, it is a practice, so you don't, you know, trying to learn these skills and and practice them not just when you're feeling extremely um, stressed and anxious. Um, you know, we had there there are some people do really well with the apps out there and like the apps like. Calm or head yeah, the calm, calm and headspace and yeah, some of those those are excellent. And actually, yeah. I will say the VA, the Veterans Administration, puts out a uh -huh. lot of great free apps. Um, oh, that's good. Um, so they have one for cognitive behavioral therapy. They have one that they created and modified during COVID. Um, I can come up with a name that has some mindfulness apps. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, the um, just YouTube on YouTube, you can find great like mindfulness. Yeah. Um, uh, it, music to listen to as you're going to sleep with diurnal beats that actually has some evidence uh -huh. as far as the brain waves it um, taps into. Um, I personally have trouble doing mindfulness that's not has not active in some way. Um, okay, I understand. So that. I like progressive muscle relaxation um, and can find you can find guided meditations with that just because at least you're physically doing something. Um, one of the quick skills that I like to teach people, uh -huh. I, I don't know, do you, have you heard about the, um, the mammalian diving reflex? I have actually yeah, a long time ago, but I do yeah, remember that. So for especially patients that have been used, you know, that suffer from panic or feel like when mm -hmm. they get really distressed, um, that fight or flight of their nervous system kicks in, um, and they have trouble breathing because they're breathing too fast and hearts racing. So this works faster than any benzodiazepine. And that is um, you have a, a nerve, a branch of a nerve that runs mm -hmm. under your eye and it has a temperature sensor. And in mammals, one thing that temperature sensor does is when it um, gets cold and the breath is being held, um, like you're so diving into cold water is what, how it right. gets sense. It tells your body to 
slow down your breathing and slow down your heart rate to conserve energy and keep your core warm. And so you can trigger that the most realistic way, although I don't, I don't love it, but as you can get a bowl of cold water and stick your face in it. Um, the other way is holding your breath and putting like a bag of cold zip, like a Ziploc bag with ice water across that skin under your eyes. And for like 30 seconds, 20, whatever you can hold your breath for taking some really good deep breaths. And there's some good videos online of, you know, uh, a guy that I think he was a psychologist, but suffers from panic attacks. And he shows on his smartwatch, you know, his, his heart rate going down pretty quickly um, using right. that trick. So um, that is so interesting. I, it's funny because when you said that, I said, well, yeah, I'm familiar with it, but not at all in the context you're saying. I actually used to teach lifeguard training oh, okay. for about 10 years. And we studied mammalian diving reflex because of you know preserving temperature and stuff and, and, and that reaction to water and survival. So it's funny. I, was, I never thought about it from the psychological standpoint. And this is, this is really interesting. You yeah. Know? And I think it's a really good mindfulness. School. I mean, so you know, mindfulness talks about non-judgmental awareness. So how do you cultivate awareness without judgment of what you're feeling, thinking, you know, they talk right. about using all right. your senses. Um, and, and so I think for, for a lot of people too, that change in temperature and sensation can be helpful to kind of remove you a little bit from whatever is acutely overwhelming you. Um, so I think looking at things like that, there's so many resources now, often, of course, I think social connection is such an important piece and support. Mm -hmm. um, and so finding um, people that are dealing with similar things right. know, online is great, but if, and if possible, locally, um, because I think, you know, that the importance on, of not um, dealing with things alone is, is such a big part of learning to handle distress. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. Um, a topic that came up while I was listening to you was polydrugging. It's a term I know we use. I don't know if it's really used in the medical community as much, but we use it a lot in the benzo community. Mm -hmm. um, we have, we have a, a mutual friend, and I can say his name because his story has been public, which is John State. And he currently is in that, and he shared his story on some live podcast or some live um, events we've done. And, um, you know, he currently is in that state. He's on a benzo or two along with some other um, um, psych drugs. And he's not the only one. There's so many people that I speak with sometimes who are on multiple medications mm -hmm. and either aren't getting the support from their psychiatrist or doctor that they're looking for, or that doctor is telling them to stay on them, mm -hmm. you know, and not do anything. For the patient who is on multiple medication and is fearful of long-term complications from benzos and possibly from these other meds, how do they approach their psychiatrist? Do you have any advice for them about how to go about it, especially when they don't even know with their symptoms, which drug is causing the problem? Yeah. Or if they wanted to start taper, which one do they start to taper? Yeah. Is there any, any um, information you can provide in that area? I think, you know, if, if you're able to ask your prescriber uh, to sit down with you or in writing, you know, talk with you through, mm -hmm. we talk about what this medication's for, what does it help with and how does it work and what are the most common side effects? Um, I frequently use one of our databases called Micromedics, which reports adverse side effects by what's reported in the literature. So it has to have been reported, which we know that means this stuff is missed, but at least gives you a percentage of, you know, in trials, this is the percentage of people. And sometimes it can be in very wide range, but that report insomnia or agitation or um, dry mouth or 
what have you, and kind of look at those things and think through, um, you know, which might be the most likely to be contributing to some of the side effects, um, okay. as well as what does the med do and, and, and is it currently help, you know, helping with the depression or sleep or anxiety? Um, and also what are the potential um, risks or side effects with decreasing okay. each med? The most important thing, and I, I'm sure my patients are sick of hearing me say this, but is um, I always tell my patients, um, my goal is I do not want to, we do not want to make you a bad science experiment. So we do not want to change right. multiple things at once. Um, okay. Because if we make multiple changes, starting, decreasing, stopping um, medications, and you have a side effect or um, um, a withdrawal symptom or anything like that, we won't know which medication's causing it. I mean, sometimes you can know if they're very different mechanisms um, and sometimes you don't have the liberty, but most of the time, if you yeah. can not make multiple changes, um, it's to your benefit. Okay. Um, so that would be, you know, first and f- foremost, and then thinking through which one you might choose to, to work on decreasing first. Say hypothetically, I know you can't. I know you can't advi- I know you can't provide any medical advice here on the show. But just say hypothetically, somebody's on a benzo and an SSRI, or is on that or a psychotropic or something like that, and they're just deciding. You know, some of the literature says that you, they should go ahead and um, stay on the SSRI while they're coming off the benzo because that provides some stability. Um, is that what you're seeing most of the time or? Yeah. I mean, assuming they have a, you know, a longstanding anxiety or, and, or a depression. Um, okay. And the fact that tapering the benzos can very likely destabilize that or cause rebound anxiety or insomnia. I think so. I mean, now if they're, if, if it's clear they're having some really bad side effects from, from the antidepressant, you know, might they work to, to switch to a different one with fewer side effects um, you know, that might be an option. Okay. Ultimately, it, it, depending on the, I mean, I try to, you know, work with the patient, to discuss through these things and usually tell them here are the few options. One is to always at that time, do nothing or change nothing uh, and wait. And then I always say, I'd rather, assuming there's not some something that is forcing us to do it much more like rapidly, or we have for some reason, limited time, I'd much rather make a very the smallest decrease we can, given whatever mm-hmm. the formulation of the medication is, um, to see how they do with it. Especially if it's someone that we know has historically had greater sensitivity to medications, um, and the side effects probably related to how they metabolize the medications, something about their okay. you know genetics and how it affects their um, uh, liver metabolism. Uh, or something about their nervous system. I mean, it could be for a variety of reasons um, that we can't often pinpoint, but um, I'd rather make a small decrease initially, have them right. less likely to have bad symptoms, have them experience what it, what that feels like um, and move through it, than make too big of a jump or um, and have them have okay. debilitating symptoms and then become both physically and psychologically really right, worried right. about any further changes. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, I do want to just say to everybody, of course, nothing on this show is medical advice, as you all know from either one of us. And also, please work directly with your doctor or psychiatrist if you just choose to withdraw from benzodiazepines. That's something we always say on the show, and I want to make sure we emphasize that whenever we can. 
Uh, let's talk about benzodiazepines, a drug for a second. I know I asked this question when um, Steve was on, Dr. Stephen Wright. What are the benzos still good for? What, what would you as a psychiatrist, or do you think that what should these drugs still be prescribed for? What are they still effective for? So they're effective in, in really um, acute states that need okay. um, rapid sedation or, you know, agitation. So I'll say in the emergency room, psychiatric emergency room, they're used frequently. Right, right. So people that come in with an agitation and they're also manic or psychotic or even in under the influence of drugs, like especially methamphetamine, they are okay. very useful. Because they can, they can instantly calm somebody down, right? That's what they're yeah. used for in like an ER setting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Especially, and you can, I mean, if needed, you can also give them um, IV so you can really deliver them quickly and, and done usually in combination with uh, other medications. Um, they're okay. useful if someone's having a seizure to stop a seizure. Um, they're useful right. for alcohol withdrawal. They, um, they are useful in really acute, in, you know, I'll say individuals that have, are dealing with, say, a bipolar mood disorder and are becoming manic. Okay. And really, like, in addition to using the other medications that help stabilize their mood, needing to get them sleep to try to um, stop the, yeah. the, the mania, manic episode from developing using a short course, like we're talking, you know, usually right. five, uh, five days a week. Um, I mean, certainly less than that, four weeks to get them out, um, to get their sleep stabilized um, can okay. be really helpful. I mean, acute panic attacks while waiting for other medications, like, you know, unfortunately, the antidepressants that do can work really well for preventing panic disorder, um, take some time to work. They take often four to, okay. four to six yeah. weeks, at least the, the SSRIs, SNRIs. And so using them for... Um, a few weeks just to help in those instances while putting other things in place. I mean, those medications, psychotherapy, some other coping skills. Like a, like a bridge drug. Yeah. And having that very explicit conversation with a patient about why these are, why the, it's so important these are used short term. Um, short term, great. Um, and that the risk really increases the longer they're used, uh, that, 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 yeah. that the physical dependence will develop and then they'll need to be tapered. And then- you know, if they stop suddenly, there's other um, problems. So I think, you know, and, and some some severe situational anxiety, like um, mm -hmm. debilitating fear of flying or other phobias where someone really hasn't gotten anything else that, that, it, that makes it possible. I mean, those are things to consider while also weighing all the other risks and benefits, the other things going on in their, right. you know in their life. Um, and of course, trying to see if there's alternatives, but I think it is important that we don't, I don't think it's helpful for us to just say there's never any use for them because there are some and they can be used safely. And certainly I, my other worry with doing that is then you end up in the situation that happened with opioids where the pendulum swings exactly, so yeah. far the other way that even people then have, who have been on them chronically, uh, physicians become leery of the risk and and then too quickly take them off or stop them or don't want to continue prescribing them. At we, we saw that in Ireland. I know not too long ago, Ireland had that where they really cut down strictly on it. But then we had all these people that needed them to taper or, you know, to come off slowly and they weren't, they had no access yeah. and it became a, a severe problem. They kind of learned that lesson. I'm hoping we learn from them <laughs> mm -hmm. as to not how not to go about this. One of yeah. the concerns I know many of us in the community are focused on is 
making sure if we reduce the prescribing of benzos that we don't eliminate the option for people who are tapering or working on coming out from accessing the drugs when they need them. Yeah. And letting some, I mean, I think there is always the need on the one hand, I don't think people should be told they have to stay on them. But I also think there are some people that they have to work with their provider and weigh for themselves what what risk versus benefit of tapering are they able or willing to take at what point if they feel like decreasing makes is too destabilizing um do they stay on and and i always tell patients one it's a marathon not a sprint and two like if we need to pause or even if even if you know while it'd be great if we can eventually get them completely off even getting them on less helps because it comes with fewer risks right right that makes a lot of sense you know, real quick, I want to talk, talk, touch on this, and then we can start to close things down. But on, I, I have, I have eighteen thousand more questions. Um, this is going great. Thank you so much. Yeah. But um, on the science of benzos, what do we know from the research standpoint? Um, you know, we talk a lot about. I know there's been some science on GABA A receptors and the downregulation of those receptors. And the, we we talk about the central nervous system. We talk the peripheral nervous system. We talked. I mean, even Stephen has talked about the mitochondria. From your take and what you've done on research. What do we know about the actual physical changes that have happened based on these drugs? What what are we trying to correct? One, I don't have yet the encyclopedic um, memory that Dr. <laughs> yeah. Stephen Wright has of all the research that's been done. So I say this is right. an area where I'm still very much learning. Um, he's literally been sending me his all of his references, um, and I think it might yeah. take me a lifetime to read them. But um, I, I think, you know, one, I think there's a lot we don't know about exactly why certain people especially um, are so sensitive to this, you know, injury neurotoxicity um, mm-hmm. that can come from benzos. Um, I was talking to some of my colleagues, and I think you, you were on these emails as we were talking about the naming about also what yeah. this mechanism could be, um, how it might be similar to the, the mechanism of who is really acutely sensitive to alcohol withdrawal. Um Mm-hmm. No benzos do act uh, slightly differently on the GABA receptor than alcohol. Right. Um, so, you know, there, some of the issue is, yeah, you get um, when chronically exposed to benzos, you do get a downright, you know, some downregulation of your um, GABA receptors. Um, I was actually I pulled up a, a slide from one of the um, pre- talks I given, but from an article that I really like, which is more focused on um, the issue of use disorder. Um, and using the old term benzodiazepine dependence when that was connected to yeah. addiction. Part of the issue is that, um, you know, so benzos are acting the spinal cord and that's related to muscle relaxation, your brain stem and your cerebellum. And that's why you can get this uh, okay. ataxia or kind of um, unsteadiness. Um, right. And then your, your limbic in cortical areas, and that's where it's involved in emotional, ex, um, expression experience in your behavior. Um, okay. and, and then you also get further downstream, um, changes. It starts affecting other neurotransmitters as well. I mean, not, so all these things are related. So, right. well, you know, chronic exposure to this GABA agonism, um, but GABA, yeah. as you know, this, and it's amazing to still like, I have to always think through this actually inhibits your nervous system. So if you're chronically inhibited, then part of what happened is right. um, your the glutamate, which is an, your active activating kind of counters GABA 
um, gets riled okay. up underneath. That's that's why um, if you stop um, benzos or alcohol suddenly, which have been causing this chronic depression um, via um, GABA of your nervous system, underneath glutamate's really active, um, trying to make sure you're staying mm-hmm. alert, awake, <laughs> breathing. And if you take away that inhibition too quickly, that's why you are at risk of seizures, but also a lot of other, I mean, increased anxiety, shakiness, tremor. You know, I haven't I haven't seen a lot of really good research that shows exactly what the chronic exposure okay. um, does. We're still lacking a lot of that. I You know, we know more from alcohol. Um, right. Um, and again, it, it acts on the same receptor, but not the same way. In some of the conversations we've had with the other addiction psychiatrists in our meetings, I know that's come up a few times and alcohol is always brought up by them because there are similar mechanisms in place and similar effects in place, mm-hmm. you know, between alcohol and benzodiazepines. And um, that's one of the things we talk a lot about on the podcast, too. We've touched on it in the past on alcohol because, you know, should you drink, you know, while on benzos? And that's, well, that actually warns against that on the label, but also especially during withdrawal because alcohol is affecting those same receptors. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, yeah, when you combine them. So benzos alone don't tend to cause um a dangerous amount of respiratory depression, decreased breathing. Right. But when you combine them with alcohol or, of course, with opioids, um, it becomes very dangerous. And it, and it's just that extreme amount of um, sedation. But yeah, we have such a huge need for more research. And I think part of the, this is why we need so much more attention called to what these debilitating uh, long-term effects are. And then also to the fact, you know, I think it's not often enough that the medical community learns about deaths and, and especially, unfortunately, suicides that are right. connected to um, suffering from these medications. Because I think you're often told things like, you know, the, the worry with the, came with opioids is that, of course, there's a lot of overdoses um, associated with right. it and they're deadly. And of course, we know or some of the, the literature says that at least a third of opioid overdoses do involve benzos. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. there is an acute issue and I think there, and we know increasingly that there sadly is, is a lot of suicide related to the harm from these medications. Um, And I think those are the things, those are the stories that are ultimately going to help create more both legislation as well as more um, guidelines around and, and research dollars. In fact, I think that was what was really behind the our the benzodiazepine action work group getting recognized by CDPHE because it was the suicidality, the suicide research that was done in correlation with it that got their attention because our governor was really focused on reducing um, suicide within the state. And so that connected and that mm-hmm. got, I think, attention to this cause more than it might not have without that factor. Yeah. So sometimes we unfortunately have to use sad statistics like that to get attention for what we're trying to deal with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, oh, I could go on and on and on, but I think we probably need to start to close things down, Alexis. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to take a couple of minutes here to say any closing words or any advice or um, reassurances you have for people who are struggling with this and trying to figure out how to handle their taper or come off of benzodiazepines. Ooh, um I mean, again, Did I catch you on that one? Yeah, well, there's so many, so many ways to 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 say. I mean, one is, you know, wanting to apologize, though that doesn't feel adequate, you know, for for 
what patients have endured and experienced as a result mm-hmm. of a prescribed medication. And that I, you know, I, I like to think the vast majority of prescribers were trying to help and, right. and decrease distress and difficulty and the reason we need to bring so much more awareness. And then I think the other is, um, you know, how we continue to help educate prescribers how to deal with this and understand why it can be so difficult for patients. I mean that, and I'm regularly when I'm supervising residents, helping them with this of like a patient can tell you they want, you know, they recognize X, Y, and Z long-term effect that they think is related. And they, their goal is ultimately to get off this medication and they're scared, they're anxious, they're worried, they're worried they're going to become dysfunctional and not be able to work or provide Mm -hmm. or caretake. Um, And that might make them ambivalent or reluctant to make a decrease or try to come off or be prescribed fewer, you know, pills next month. And that doesn't mean they don't, you know, they're not, that doesn't mean they don't, like, it's not still their goal. And, you know, how do we just keep, keep in, in mind that we're on the same team, we have the same goal. Um, And I, and again, I think, you know, it is always to our benefit when possible to, to go slower, make a smaller increase, or if, if, you know, put some other um, supports in place before starting, you know, whatever it is to get, make sure that um, a patient feels more confident, supported, comfortable with, with the plan. Yeah, that's great. I know it's, it's such a complex problem as we're, as we're learning, just as you know, we're working on naming this and everything else and trying to figure out there's so many factors that go into, and that's, I think, part of, of course, the, um, the hidden nature of it is that most doctors never recognizes the symptoms as being related. Um, I had a conversation with a couple of the Vanderbilt doctors not too long ago, and one of the things he mentioned was when we identified in one of the research papers that certain symptoms were the early on ones and other symptoms were much longer. And we started to see, realize that those were the same symptoms that doctors are told to watch for are the early ones, not the later ones, mm-hmm. um, especially the cognitive and other dysfunctions and anxiety. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I think a lot of psychiatrists and doctors did not see the um, these other symptoms because they weren't taught to look for them. Mm-hmm. You know, it was we're looking for the seizures. We're looking for the hallucinations. You're looking for the tremors, you know, the initial ones. But those are normally short-lived. Even mm-hmm. in people with long-term benzodiazepines, those usually don't last too long. And so I thought that was interesting, you know, when we started to find some of that. But I think that's that comes back to your point of, you know, making sure that we educate doctors, psychiatrists, everybody in hey, this is real, this dependence happens, what to look for, how to help people who want to come off of them, and how to limit the prescribing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. A lot yeah, of work ahead so. of us. A lot of work, but we're doing good work. And I just want to thank you, um, number one, for being on the show today. This has been amazing. Um, a lot of great information, and I can't wait to have you back. Hopefully, you will come back on the Absolutely. show again, because there's much more we can talk about. Um, but also just all the work you've done and that as a psychiatrist to take on the extra work of advocacy and um, educating and everything about this cause. This is what we need in the community. And we are truly grateful to people like yourselves who are taking a lead in helping to change change the situation. Well, thank you. Well, I just feel lucky to have have found you all to collaborate with and um, and, and work together on this uh issue that is certainly not not going away and hopefully get some people some more 
relief and keep more people from ending up in this situation. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for being on the show, Alexis. I really appreciate it. You have a good day. You too. Oh, I just want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Ritfo for taking the time out of her incredibly busy schedule to talk with us today. Thanks, Alexis. She she is one of the good ones. And I am very grateful that she took her time out to talk with us and also to be able to work with her every week. Um, she has dedicated her time to this cause. She is spending a lot of time in helping to raise awareness educating providers and helping us find a solution for this. And um, for those medical professionals who are doing that, especially the ones who have never even been through it themselves, but have seen the damage that long-term um, use of these drugs can do and have decided to do something about it, like Dr. Stephen Wright and like so many other addiction psychiatrists and medical doctors that I am now working with, like Dr. Christy Huff. And and the list goes on and on, and I'm not going to list ones, but Nicole Lamberson, um, physician assistant over at Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. These people are just amazing. And um, some of them had lived experience, some of them don't, but having that medical knowledge um, then being able to work with people in the medical communities to help change the way the medical professionals community deals with these drugs makes a huge difference. So I just want to say thanks to Alexis for speaking with, speaking with us today and for all that she does. And before I close, please allow me just 25 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. And thank you again for joining me for this special conversation. And please, let us know how we did. I'd love to hear from you. Keep calm. Taper slowly. And take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.